netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, I'm Mike Seymour, and welcome to this FX Podcast about everything, everywhere, all at once, (laughs) which is an amazing film with perhaps one of the most uh, original and creative narratives we've seen in a really long time. And it's all the more remarkable when you realize that most of the visual effects work was done by just five artists. Well, we thought we'd sit down with the guys, all of them, all at once. Well, four out of the five uh, to discuss the film, their process, their tools, and uh, just some of the insane stuff that they had to deal with. Uh, The team was led by Zach Schultz and Zach and the other guys. Well, hopefully you'll stay with the whole interview. It's a little long, but it was one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done in ages. And by the end, we revealed things that even Zach didn't know about his own team and the way that the work was done. So let's cut now to uh, my interview that was recorded previously with Zach as the visual effects supervisor, and then uh, Ethan, Jeff, and Matt. The fifth member, uh, Ben, of that primary set wasn't able to join us for the call, but you'll hear uh, Ben discuss. And check out the show notes where we have a number of behind-the-scenes clips showing how they put the uh, scenes together, uh, as well as some really great uh, additional facts. Here now is my interview with all of the VFX team for everything, everywhere, all at once. So Zach, thanks so much for organizing this and guys, thanks so much for uh, turning up and uh, and having a chat. Um, maybe we could just quickly go around the group. So starting with you, Zach, and just outline what each of your roles were on this uh, quite extraordinary, amazing and uh, critically now acclaimed film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I'm Zach Stoltz. I was the visual effects supervisor on the film, but I also ended up getting credited as the visual effects producer, which was a surprise to me until I was uh, informed that I was going to get that credit. And then I realized that I had been doing that job all along. So, okay, (laughs) that works. And then uh, I was also a VFX artist on the film. Uh, I'm Ethan. I was lead visual effects artist and visual effects designer. I'm Jeff Dessam, also VFX artist uh, and jack of all trades for uh, whatever you throw at me, I'll do it. And I don't know if we ha- we have Matt with us, but I don't know we've got Matt's audio working. We, yeah, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I did um, uh, primarily compositing, um, uh, same as Jeff, except uh, he was more involved with uh, a few of the smaller CGI elements. So I pretty much did uh, compositing, a lot of the screen composites and paint out. And the only person we're missing, Zach, is Ben, right? Yeah, Ben Brewer, who was uh, also one of our lead VFX artists, and he was instrumental in the the R&D process, which was extensive on this movie, and maybe not quite what (laughs) you're used to an R&D process being, but uh, it was for us a lot of iterating on, you know, what the bagel looks like, which is a big character in the film, but we won't really go too spoilery into that. Um, Yeah. So it's unusual for me to talk to the entire visual effects team of a major motion picture, um, mainly because the credit runs uh, on a Marvel film, for example, uh, deservedly run to uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, not because they're inefficient, but because that's just the nature of those big tentpole pictures. You guys have pulled off uh, an amazing film that is really visually interesting in, in so many ways with a team of literally five not kind of five, like there's just the five of you, right? Well, we had we had a couple more people who did come on to help out with a handful of things. And I'll, and I'll be like very honest about that. We have 
it was five of us who did over 80% of the shots and there were um, over 500 shots in the film. We haven't actually counted how many visual effects shots there were because there were some sequences that were um, composed of like 15 visual effects shots that were all in like a bunch of different shots, but we just categorized them as one sequence because there would be times when we would actually just spit out a section of the, of the movie and then just like go over the top of the whole section and then just do that, which is not normal. But um, so we, we had that. And then we also had um, Evan Halleck who came on to help out with uh, a handful of things in the, the rock universe. Uh, there's going to be a lot of weird things that I, I bring up. Um, and then uh, Kirsten Lepore, who was uh, actually Dan Kwan, one of the directors, uh, his wife came to help out with a, uh, um, one particular scene. And then we did have uh, a couple, we had a handful of shots that we did outsource uh, for some roto and wire removal. Um, but those were usually inputs into the larger shot that we ended up working on. Yeah. I mean, shot count is such a weird concept on a normal film, right? Because it doesn't right. give you any reference to how complicated the shot is or how long the shot is. Uh, but in your case, uh, what what constitutes a shot is kind of pushing the boundaries, right? Because it's like, right. at, at what point is that two shots or is that one shot kind of connected together in two locations? So, sure. But um, and for instance, there's a section in the in the movie that is like just flashing between di different uh, faces of of Evelyn, the main character, and we ended up creating a bunch of different Evelyns. That was one of Ben's main jobs. Ben and Matt both did a lot of those, um, and there's. I don't even know how many of those we did. It was a, it was a ton of them. Um, but that was considered one sequence, even though there were like seven, like, uh, like a hundred different faces. Um, don't call me on that. And then, you know, like a lot of other things that were a part of that sequence. And there's yeah. also a lot of shots here that were overtly visual effect shots and full of style and designer animation and many shots, many that were invisible effects, images broken apart and put back together. So this is, you know, some of it might not even be noticeable to an audience. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, hopefully thus. And in fact, some of that we'll get into because I know that you had uh, the influence of COVID breaking up productions. There was stuff being shot in France. There's being shot, shot remotely. Um, and, and I do want to get to that. But before I do, let's just get a little bit of backstory on how this came together. So, uh, so Zach, can you talk to me about when you first got involved and how you got these yeah. guys then involved? Yeah, so it started out, I want to say, towards the end of 2019, um, I, I've i been friends with Dan and Daniel, directors, for, for like 10 years, and, and, and all of us have, really. Um, and so they came to me because I had done a lot of visual effects work with them in the past, uh, and they wanted to know uh, if it would be possible to do this on a do this bigger movie on a smaller scale in terms of the, the VFX uh, team, because they had worked with a larger VFX house in the past on their previous film, Swiss army man. And they didn't love the process. It's not that they didn't love the work that came out of it. It was just the process was not the type of thing that they're used to. Like when I do visual effects with them, it's like, I'm hanging out. I remember specifically like hanging out in Dan Kwan's bedroom with Daniel Shiner and us just like sleeping under our desks while we were waiting for renders because we were just doing it literally out of our bedrooms and just making stuff and, you know, having access to everything, delivering the, like the music video, like our, on our own, like at five in the morning. Um, and so they wanted to be able to have this very hands-on approach where they could, they could play around with the visual effects. They could directly communicate with the artists and not have this big game of telephone that was going on. 
and instead just be able to sit down and, and just talk through a shot and talk through what they're thinking, play with stuff, pass stuff back and forth. Um, so my job was to, to make that happen basically. And so, um, Ethan and Ben were the first people that were hired. Um, Ethan came on really early in pre-production because we were doing a lot of design stuff for the, uh, for all the Alphaverse technology that's in the movie. Um, and I'll let Ethan speak to that uh, a bit later. And then after that, um, after we shot, Ben came on to help out with a lot of the R&D stuff with Ethan. And then it was just a small team of just me and Ben and Ethan for a while. Um, and then I don't remember if Jeff came on after Picture Lock or before Picture Lock. Um, I think it was before. Slightly uh, before, was, yeah. Yeah, and then, and so so Jeff came on because really the way that we built out the team was realizing, okay, what do we have and what do we need? And we had a lot between me and Ethan and Ben, but I was also, I, I couldn't be like the artist producer and supervisor and do like all the rest of the shots that need to get done. So we knew that we were going to expand the team a little bit. Um, so we ended up bringing on Jeff to help with some stuff. And then uh, a little bit later, we brought on Matt and then Evan was also working a little bit, just like here and there when we had some shots that uh, no one else had time to tackle. So at the outset of the process, uh, was the script a tight as you sort of ended up translating it to the film, a tight script that kind of matched or was it the early stages? Oh, it was completely different to what we see on the screen now. And it was just, you know, an evolving organic kind of, you know, not no criticism implied, but just that it, yeah. it evolved and changed. It was, it was very evolving. Uh, I think that to read the script and then watch the movie, you would, you would see where the film came from, but not, but there would be, there were certain things that were missing. There were certain things that were added there. It was, it was an evolution. And, and as it reads on the page is not exactly how it plays out in the film. And the film is, is insane and cuts back and forth between all these different universes. And so there was a lot of leeway in, in how they could cut that together. Um, and there were certain things that weren't, nece weren't necessarily cutting the way that they wanted to. And we ended up having visual effects solutions for some of those things um, to help yes. explain to the audience. Um, and, and Ethan, do you actually want to talk about that briefly with some of the, the UI yeah. stuff since we're there? You know, the one thing I would point out is the script was actually larger to begin with. And they had actually photographed even more of the movie than made it into the movie. Um, yeah. just something that will probably come out, but I might let the Daniels be the one to kind of lead what they'll talk about. Um, they had really mapped out the script. So there was a very uh, connected foundation. And of course, as the movie uh, went into editorial, um, they trimmed it down into what was essential to clarify their story. Uh, one thing very special that happened was that we were able to work in tandem with the editorial process, um, something very few movies do. I suppose a larger Marvel movie can hire an effects team on for, for months or years before, um, but most movies will lock in edit and then the decisions will be made and go into the visual effects. Here, we got to audition and test, design, R&D, all of that. Uh, due to the circumstances of lockdown, alongside Paul Rogers, our editor, and the Daniels, to help the movie speak clearly. Um, so, Ethan, can I just build on that point? Because I was going to come to it later, but you brought it up now. So, 
on most productions, um, you know, you're going to have a visual effects editor because the editing requirements of the visual effects team are quite different than the visual effects editing required for the narrative. Yeah. And to a certain extent, you, you are serving the editor's need, uh, in this case, uh, Paul's need to convey what's required to keep the visual logic working. And so therefore, you know, hey, I, we don't have this shot and we kind of need this or I need that these two halves put together. And that's a very different problem than an effects editor who might need reference and like a ton of stuff that's just not in the Correct. film at all. Did you have an effects editor or was that actually all coming out of editorial? So that was, we had an, a VFX assistant editor um, who ended up uh, taking over as the main assistant editor later on the film. Um, but he, but it was mostly all Paul. And the, the interesting thing is because Dan and Daniel have done a lot of visual effects stuff themselves, they were able to communicate a lot of the VFX needs to Paul and Paul knew from working on, on VFX stuff in the past that he would be um, like, he was really the main person who was slotting and all that stuff. And then Ashish, who, who I'll be talking about a lot more later when we get into workflow stuff. Um, he was, he was really helpful in just being kind of the go-between for us. So I don't know, Jeff or Ethan, I guess I wanted to ask you, normally in your positions, even as seniors in a VFX team, you're not kind of directly doing a lot with the directors because there's like multiple levels of people between you and them because there's, you know, a, a supervisor, then there's your company supervisor, then there's like, you know, lead supervisors. How much did you guys as artists get to talk to Dan and Daniel? Well, you know, we had started with the what I'll call buffer, the polite communication conduit that would have been Zach talking to the Daniels. But if you go back to the Daniels work in music videos, they would have a small friendly team and work together very hard for the week or two to get their effects done. And they ran into their first experience of having sort of a communication buffer, if you will, with Swiss Army Man. And they really wanted to return to working directly with the artists, um, albeit um, we needed to make sure that, you know, every note that came through came through Zach so that it could be accounted for and then delivered to us. But by the, I, I would say at the start of the film, um, as much information filtered through Zach to us and by the end of the film, uh, we felt it was important to have direct access to the Daniels to speak to them and weekly meetings with them to check in. So by the end of the film, we really were all working directly with the directors. Um, yeah. I remember also instances where we would sidebar into one-on-one -on -one sessions with uh, either one of the Daniels uh, and just screen share uh, the actual project that we were working on and try things live and and really work on it uh together um to to try out things and and see what would work and what wouldn't so zach i guess the question to you then is like that's a really healthy collaborative environment and if you're a creative you just say brilliant right but yeah. one of the big problems there is you still at some point have to be beholden to a budget and a schedule. And, <laughs> and it's bad enough if it's just, and, and I'm only speaking now from a production management point of view, not from a creative point of view, but from production management, it's bad enough if you're the creative and the producer, because 
the reason we normally have a producer and a creative is so that you never have to say no as a creative because you just say yes, yes, yes to the director. And then you go talk to your producer who says, okay, I'll go talk to their producer and say yes at a price. But right. you avoid the problem of you as a creative both saying yes as a creative and no as a producer. And then if you have your team also doing that, you're now like sitting there going, well, they just agreed to something <laughs> and I don't know how the heck they're going to find enough bottoms to do to do that. So, so talk to me about that. Like, did you find... Yeah. Because you can't just have, especially on a film like this, an open budget. Right. Yeah. I mean, the it was a challenge. And I think that I was a, a lot more concerned about that earlier on in the process than I was later in the process. But I think part of that was this was the first, you know, movie I'd done as a supervisor. Uh, this was, I think, the first time a lot of us had been involved with a project like this. And it was the first time that Dan and Daniel had tried this process out. So uh, outside of like the smaller music video thing and, and on those old music videos, like we would, it wasn't a question of cost because we were just all on flat rates or just doing it because we wanted to do it. And it was just like, we just went up until the deadline. Um, and, and so we actually kind of did something similar in this film in the sense that really early on, I was very tight with how, much we were spending, how much time we were taking on things, because I knew that there was this huge stretch that we were going to get to, and we didn't want to run out of money or time before we got everything done. And so earlier on, it was, you know, keeping it very small. And that was also the benefit of having a really small crew. Like we didn't, it's not like we were wasting, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a day on this stuff. It was just like, oh, we spent an extra day. Like, you know, it's an extra like thousand dollars or like, $2,000, depending on who was on. Um, and so. But but while I acknowledge your point, like it's obviously you're not, the, yeah. the, if you, even if we just go back to this hopeless metric of shot count, right? right. Anything times 500 is a lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, you add $1,000 on 500 times, it's half a million dollars, right? I mean, it's, right. it's that's the difference between a music video, right? You go over on a music right. video and it's like, well, okay, there are only, you know, 25 shots. And if we get an extra shot or whatever, at 500 or more, it's uh, it's just that multiplier effect that kind of kills you, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the the where I was going with that was, you know, at first it was keeping it really tight, but then as we went on, it was a lot of we had this mentality of we need to get everything to a place where it could go in the movie, like, and then we move on. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to like there are there are going to be notes that come in where we're going to say no to this. We're going to say no, like if there's time. And the thing is, the directors were really understanding because it all also comes from the fact that we've all worked together and we're all friends with each other. Like we hang out outside of this stuff. It's not like, and, and that actually makes it a little more difficult to say no to sometimes because we, we all want the movie to be as good as they do. Um, but it was really trying to find this internal balance of we need to get everything to 80%. And if we can get everything to 80% and then move on, then we can always come back and we can refine because our process was a very open process. It wasn't like we needed to final a shot and then like we could never come back to it. It was, we're doing it. Okay, let's move on to something else. Come back to this one six months later, which did happen. <laughs> Let me ask Matt a question then. Like Matt, yeah, you came sure. into this not at the very outset of the project. Did it seem like it was a well-oiled, simple to sort of slot into machine or did you have any kind of like, um, you know, how do I even kind of find my feet in terms of the running of the project? 
Well, with, yeah, with respect to the workflow, um, my background is also kind of more DIY uh, and I work primarily in ads and I'm often one of like one or two artists on the ad. So I end up doing, we'll, we'll have someone do motion graphics and then I'll do screen composites and like, you know, uh, beauty work, logo paint out, whatever. Um, so uh, kind of the small team is something that was familiar to me. Um, uh, with respect to what Zach said earlier about taking a shot to 80%, um, this might just be, you know, uh, I'll often find that like the last few iterations of a revision on anything um, take longer than um, initially putting the composite together. And, uh, you know, so you can save a lot of time if you're not, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're willing to just um, uh, either communicate clearly up front or, um, you know, alternately just be okay without like, you know, painting out every tiny little detail that's imperfect. Um, I also like people I know who are working on uh, Marvel movies will go through a huge um, previs process, which is something that's, you know, unfamiliar to me, honestly. And um, here I feel like uh, problems were solved more in real time. And um, from what I understand, um, and I, I wasn't on set and I, you know, I'm kind of the newcomer here, but um, that uh, included some of the uh, some of the onset stuff too. Like, I mean, the way that, uh, things were approached, there wasn't maybe as much storyboarding as, uh, Zach just mentioned that in one scene. I was like, the scene's so cool. How did you ever storyboard this? It's so chaotic. And he was like, they didn't. So, um, I was, I was into it. I liked the workflow, but I also come from a fairly, uh, DIY background. So, um, it wasn't, you know, totally unfamiliar to me in that respect. In that DIY background, did there ever a hear a notion of a second unit or a second unit director because i know like either dan or daniel like, were shooting stuff themselves like for yeah. the cascading kind of shooting back um sequences like what well, when we first introduced to the concept of like what's going on that uh her in the chair going backwards which i think she was actually in a wheelbarrow michelle at that point yeah. um, that was all them shooting that kind of stuff kind of i don't know indie i guess you'd say was were you guys going out to shooting extra elements? Was there a second unit? How did that work? There was originally a plan to do a big, uh, like have a secondary elements uh, shoot that we were going to do, um, and then COVID happened. And because originally we were all going to be in the same place, I feel like we're going on a lot of different threads, but I'll try to bring it all back together. Sure. Um, so originally we were we were planning on us all being in the same room, uh, like the same post house with with Paul. Uh, just across the hall so that we could all just be in the same place. We could be working on stuff, set up a little green screen to do like an elements shoot um, and like composite in whatever we needed to uh, in that DIY sense. And then COVID happened and we separated off and we're doing everything remotely. But in terms of uh, second unit stuff during principal photography, uh, Dan did ask me if, you know, he did say like as a part of the, the role of the effects supervisors, like, and maybe even directing some second unit stuff when it, if it came to it. But ultimately, there were only a handful of things that I would be supervising um, as as like a second unit uh, director. And it was usually just something that they like. It was always something involving the visual effects. It was just like little things here and there. Um, and typically, one since there were two Daniels, like one of them could, you know, it was a lot of stuff in the same location. So um, one person would be upstairs filming something. The other would come down and check on the second unit stuff that was going on. But there wasn't a whole lot of that. So uh, I'm going to get back to workflow and tools and stuff, but let's just discuss a couple of problems, uh, not problems, but like ways of solving things. So you've got um, the now kind of infamous hot dog fingers. You've got a raccoon. You've got things that could be 
maybe digital that could be puppets that could be practical effects um you know when you're looking at um the shots like what was the process of deciding when something was going to be practical when something was going to be a door that was ripped off that was like you know the the, uh, standby props would make and it'd be or would it be digital um like how did that process work its way through it was usually uh if it could be practical, it would be practical. Like all of those things that you mentioned, none of those were visual effects. They were all practical. But they and could have been digital. They could have been. But I think one of the big, one of the challenges with a movie like this is, and it's not even a challenge, it's just that we we don't know how to do as much of that stuff, honestly. Like that's not the Daniels background. And they like to have more control over what it is that they're doing. They know how to do that stuff practically. They know they have a team that can pull that off. There's always the question of, you know, is it gonna look good enough? Is it gonna look real enough if you're trying to make a lot of that stuff digitally? And there's this, very early on, there was this idea that uh, they wanted it to be less Marvel, more Ghostbusters. And there's a few different ways to interpret that, but the main thing was, about keeping it simple and keeping it to the types of effects that we understood and that we knew how to do and that we've been doing for forever. Um, And so we wanted to make sure, and this is something that I think we all share uh, sensibilities in with the Daniels, which is if we can do something practically, let's start out with that as the base so that it feels like it's very grounded in reality. And we don't have this sort of open assignment of it can be anything. You can create anything here. It can be like, you can have all this like crazy energy coming out of everything. And it's all, you know, this magical stuff. It's always it's kind of ironic wrong. given the title of the film that you're saying right. you couldn't have everything. <laughs> but I think that's part of why the film is working for people because it is really grounded in the story of this family. And it's grounded in, in this, like every reality that we show does feel like it's an actual reality that could exist. And, and, and so with the exception of very few things, like, there was like no CG in this movie. The bagel was a CG element, but then it was just a ton of 2D compositing. Um, and then there were a handful of other things, like some objects were CG because it was easier <laughs> in COVID to just like do a 3D model that was like whipping around and like paper that's flying than it would be to do a practical shoot. But but that it's honestly working with what we know and how we know that we can make something look good and feel very... Um, uh, feel tangible in a way so that it's something that was photographed. But we're discussing those things at the moment in terms of it being a thing in the shot. But the thing right. about this film is it's the the nature of having these matched cuts, right? Like a lot right. of it is like Michelle is doing an action that is from a different reality that's now playing in a fight sequence. And it right. matters to the audience and it matters presumably first and foremost to the directors that those shots look like they're the same but now jumping between realities because if her movements are like completely different, the camera angles, the, the lensing, the whatever, it doesn't all line up. And so in a, in a naive sense, I'd be like, well, that just, that just screams a ton of onset visual effects kind of monitoring and a ton of, Hey, I can realign those things for you. I can extend that and match yeah. that because you shot that on a completely different day, obviously it's not a different month from that other thing. Sure. Um, is is that true, or was it like you just they just had a killer onset person with a uh, hard disk that was just playing stuff back, and it was all being lined up on the split? If if I may, you're scratching yeah. the surface of the cultivated talent pool the Daniels have pulled together yeah. in the past decade. So, for example, 
we have Jason Kisvardi as our production designer. And I have been a production designer for the Daniels and their past work as well. And I'm friends with Jason Kisvardi, who has a taste for a lot of practical effects involvement in his work. So I've also gone to school with Larkin Seipel, our director of photography, and can work closely with him and have done effects with him and, and art direction with him for a while. Um, throw in Zach Stoltz, who's been there the whole way around. And what you have is a movie that has been written, pre-planned and designed around the talents and abilities, as well as the focus and involvement of these people. Um, this may not have had interchangeable crew that might have been possible for other movies. So right. I think that's really true. And, 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 and to, to, also get back to, you know, the question of, you know, did we have just an onset, you know, we did have VTR on set, but the other thing is like Dan and Daniel, they, I've having, co I've co-directed a music video with them and I've gotten to see firsthand what it looks like when they're just like figuring this stuff out. And it, and it was, it was really hard for me because I like to be very meticulous and plan everything out to like detail. And it's like very detailed shot list and like have a really great but the thing is, they just go back and forth with each other. And they're like, oh, what about this? Oh, this. Oh, yeah, what about that? And it's like, okay, this thing, this thing. To the point where when, when I was co-directing with them, like, we didn't even have a shot list. It was just because we were we had talked about it so much and bounced it back and forth that if one of us forgot something and it was important, the other person would remember it. But if none of us yeah, remembered right. it, then it probably wasn't that important to begin with. And so they did have a lot of these things planned out. But a lot of the times it was because they have, like, I I... I came on to help them with their first project because they had done all the effects on all their stuff up until then. And they just needed a little extra help. So we kind of had a very similar way of looking at these things and they just knew in their heads, like how these things would cut. Cause they've edited all their stuff. They've done all their own effects uh, with, with the help, with my help and others help, but they, they did have it all planned out. And then there was a lot of VTR and then there were like little moments that, you know, I was keeping track of and they were keeping track of, but it was very, I'm actually kind of surprised that they all <laughs> matched as well as they did, but you know, I mean, they were clearly keeping track of it. The Daniels really do hold the entire film in their mind. So they are active participants in a way that most directors who show up and are indecisive might not be. So they can have, you know, uh, credit for that, for being integral. Um, you know, for example, I'm working on a television show and finishing up effects on that currently. And the needs of that show are quite different because, you know, we have the, the creative choices coming from multiple people who might not be in sync. And so it really needs a larger infrastructure and multiple houses uh, in order to facilitate things fast enough to get it done and to allow for the flexibility for, you know, all these different minds to sort of see options and come together. So this this movie is sort of, I think, a one-off work of art uh, in regards to um, the small number of people being so on top of things. So I've heard the Daniels talk about the fact that they were flexible to a location in the sense that they would get to a location and they would be like, okay, so now we see it. It, it would work a bit better like this and it would work a bit better like that because we're trying to facilitate the sort of shots we want, but also the visual effects slash special effects constraints or the stunt constraints of that particular location. And so that's a wonderful thing because of course, you're not just trying to force with money exactly what you had on a piece of paper, you're trying to adapt. My question is, 
I presume that happened also with visual effects where you'd be like, yeah, that's possible, but it's going to take three weeks. It's slightly different version to be possible in three days. And that they weren't just pushing for this sort of like, because there are some directors who are like, just, well, that's what I want. And it's not my problem. You solve it. I think it depended on, on the shots uh, and the sequences for this. Cause there was a lot, there were some times where it was just all of us figuring it out as we went, where it'd be, Dan starts something and does something in After Effects and, you know, just works on a project and then sends it over to us and we'd look at it and be like, okay, well, this is a, this is a good starting point. This is a good idea. Um, and then there'd be some times where we'd develop something that did seem like it was going to be, you know, a big, big deal. And then we would, we would reconfigure it a little bit, but there was a lot of that flexibility. Um, but it, but it's interesting because for the most part, they did just get what they wanted <laughs> at the end of the day when it came to visual effects. But part of that was because we had, we had time and because we were small, we were not burning through money that quickly. And, and I know that, you know, everything does, you know, you alluded to it getting kind of crazy with scale, but I think we just, we just looked at our burn rate and we were just like, okay, this is okay. And when it didn't feel okay, I would bring it up, but it was, it was always like, it's okay. Like, keep going. Which was, <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because what you want is to make the best possible film. Like yeah. that's you, you guys aren't there because you're getting massive paychecks or whatever. It's like, you're there to be creatively making the best film we possibly can. Unfortunately, yeah. like that exists in a world that somebody has to pay for something like the rent. Right. Um, hey, um, let me just discuss then the the specifics of that. So you mentioned, uh, I think it was Dan that did After Effects stuff. So like, what tools were you guys using, and what was like? It's they were actually the directors were actually doing pre comps or early tests or like how to just explain yeah. to me what the tools. In some were. cases, final. Uh, final shots. shots. Yeah. Right. And, uh, we so, took over. Yeah, for each other. So they were. So sorry to jump in on that, Matt. But so you were saying that. Uh, that they were doing after effects work and full res. And sometimes those shots would just be ones that ended up in the film. Yeah. Were you, yeah. were you guys all on after effects as well? Or like, was it yeah. a mix of? Yes. Yeah. yeah so yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So if you, if, if you're ready, I can dive into some of the technical. I would love to do stuff. a dive. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm realizing as we talk, it just, it feels like we're just, it almost feels like we're kind of breaking your brain a little bit with like, wait, you did what? How? What? It, it's, uh, <laughs> I, no, no. I mean, I've, I've done commercials and, uh, you know, back in the day when I was a compositor, like I've, I've worked on the bigger things and the smaller things, but it's because I kind of know that it's not as easy as it sounds that I'm keen to yeah. see how you did it. Right. Cause it's just so easy to think, Oh, you guys have got to go together and you kind of did it. Um, but I also know that like the constraints of, delivering the best you possibly can when you just don't have an infinite budget and an infinite amount of right. time uh, can be, you know, soul destroying. And also actually quite frankly, burnout friendships, because it's like, dude, yeah. like we haven't seen our families in weeks and this just isn't fair. Yeah. But anyway, well, go through so, the tools. Yeah. So the, what we did for this is everyone was working in after effects. And the main reason for that is not because it's the best for compositing or anything like you know, I've, I've worked with, with Nuke and, and there are certain things in Nuke that I'm like, oh man, I really wish this was an After Effects. But the thing is, we all know After Effects and we all know it very intimately. Like we, that's what we learned on, 
in college or earlier. It's what we've been working with forever. Um, it was just, it's an affordable tool. It's something that is tied in with like the entire Adobe suite, you know, so we, we've, we've had to figure out how to use it. And I think now would actually be a good time to like preface all of this by saying that everyone who was on the effects team is also a director who has made a lot of their own stuff. We've all made music videos. I, I think we've all done commercials. We've made short films. Um, and so a lot of how we learned visual effects was just by doing our own work and figuring out how to get something done. It's, we, I don't think any of us are formally trained <laughs> in any way. It was just, here's something that I want to do for a project that I'm on. How do I do that? And just going on YouTube or, you know, for me, I've like spent hours in the computer lab at college watching video co-pilot tutorials and just like learning how to do the things as we needed to learn how to do them. So that's the way that Dan and Daniel also worked because they did a ton of their own effects and they, they continue to do their own effects on a lot of things. So we worked with After Effects because it's something that we all knew and it's something that we knew that we would be able to um, pass projects back and forth with easily. We wouldn't have to rely on the one person who is working in Nuke because that's the thing that they want to work in. And then it's like, then we become beholden to them in a, in a way. And so a big, a big part of the ethos of this project was making sure that everything was open and accessible for everyone. And that's not the type of thing that you could do with a, with a bigger film. Like everyone had access to everything at all times, pretty much. And the way that that worked is we used a tool called a uh, Resilio sync and it's like a Dropbox alternative. And that's what we uh, used to sync up all of our drives. Cause originally we were planning on being in the same place, but Matt's out in Massachusetts. The rest of us are here in California, but we were all working remote. So we basically had hard drives that were clones of each other. And then we used Resilio sync to make sure that they all stayed in sync. Um, and then everyone would pull shots down and, and these, these drives had every shot on them, like every visual effects shot that was prepped by the VFX assistant editor, he would put you, it on. You must have been like at 70 terabytes or something, right? Like this must, I'm just trying to no. do the math in my head. It must have been a heck of a lot of material. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. Uh, I'm looking, they were eight terabyte drives. Okay. We, <laughs> <laughs> we weren't working with EXRs. We were just like going straight up, you know, ProRes 444. Like okay. it was, and that was also part of the pro, about part of this process as we figured it out. Like Ashish, the assistant editor, and I, we did a ton of tests beforehand and be like, okay, is there a, a noticeable quality difference on a lot of these things? No. All right. Let's go with the thing that's actually going to be possible to sync between us and give us like a quality that we're happy with. I'll let okay, you just, but just give me the parameters. So you're mastering at what resolution? 2K, 4K? 4K. So you're 4K ProRes. Mm -hmm. Who does the final grade on this? Was it at a grading house or was that you guys? Yeah, no, so I, I'm trying to remember who did. Alex Bickle. Yeah, that's right. And was Alex working at a facility or Indy? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you were delivering the film in that traditional sense, right? Um, yeah. So, so it was all coming the, the, it was all kind of in this, uh, it was all working through the system where we would have all of our sync drives as we called them, um, with all the effects on them, but we wouldn't be work. They, we weren't using those for our work drives, which is also an important distinction. So we would only have like the plates were uploaded, all the assets were on these drives, but then we wouldn't be necessarily uploading all of our renders. We'd upload a lot of proxy renders and a lot of review files, um, but we had working drives individually that were much faster that were just internal working drives on our computers 
where we'd pull the shots down, do the work, do as much stuff as we needed to, and then sync back anything that we actually wanted to share with each okay, other. But what was the plate photography shot on? Primarily? Uh, it was shot on Alexa and okay. it was a combination. It was a combination of things because they did a lot of anamorphic stuff and then they did a lot of, um, they did some anamorphic, they did some spherical. Um, it was a lot of 3.2K. Uh, so that made it a little bit easier. And then we just ended up uh, mastering in 4K. But the the anamorphic was was bigger than 4K. I'm trying to remember think, the exact resolution. I think it was 2.8K, uh, like four by three open gate. So 2.8K, yeah. but then stretched. And uh, right. two times. And, and, and for those that are just not quite aware, like the aspect ratio plays in the film, right? Oh yeah. It like, there's a lot of like animating aspect ratios going back and forth. There'd be times when they'd be shooting, you know, 2k cause they needed higher frame rates. It was the, the thing about a Daniels movie or any project is that there isn't like a, uh, a specific format. And then that's it. It's just like, Oh, we're going to shoot this on GoPro. We're going to do this on that. And it's just like a lot of just what is the right tool for the job in, in how they want to achieve something. <laughs> okay. So you I don't got, know if I'm, so go I, I don't I don't know if I'm spoiling too much by saying this about the, the process, but I do think that the kind of uh, pervasive idea of keeping everything in the moment and being satisfied with something that's just shy of perfect kind of guided uh, the shooting formats too, because it was a 4K delivery, but there were a number of shots that were in 2K and some of those were shot. Uh, am I giving away trade secrets, Zach? Nah, go uh, for some, it. Some of them were shot at, I think, at 48 <laughs> frames a second, not because oh, yeah. the plan uh, was, huh? The, oh, the plan, yeah. Yeah, the plan, like there were, there were some shots that were shot, you know, just uh, in faster, faster uh, motion or slower motion, just because of the option of slowing it down in post. Or there was a couple, there was one case, I think, where there was a 2K plate that I was like, um, you know, in the edit, a lot of the plates were zoomed in a bit so that if uh, I think there was a, I, I assume if there were a composition, you know, a match cut that didn't quite match, there might be some retiming or zooming in in post. And like, normally I would be like, oh no, we're going to lose, um, you know, we're going to lose some quality because we're zooming in too far on a lower res plate, but like, um, I think that, uh, that flexibility, um, in VFX and, you know, likely throughout the entirety of the process is why everything, uh, works so well because, um, there's, yeah, I think it's decisions that are made uh, in the moment, but with a broad plan. And on top of that, um, just a willingness to push things a little bit further. Um, even if it's a little bit rough around the edges, because yeah. it, it's the big picture. Across. And th the film is like joyously kind of fun not like you know like so i mean you know there are films that are like that would take you out of the film at no point does this take you out of the film because it's no. just such a visual feast but but, so but you've got your you've got exactly you've got after effects bed you've got these yeah. uh synced drives how are you yeah. actually managing the process are you using like uh f track like what are you actually using to coordinate and track? No, so please tell me it wasn't just excel Oh, no, no. It was, it was a step above Excel. Uh, uh, I had, it was funny. I received the, uh, the Excel spreadsheet that they used on Swiss Army Man. And I was like, this will not do. <laughs> um, so I, I, we ended up using Airtable uh, for, for all of our shot tracking. And that was, uh, it's, for people who aren't familiar with Airtable, it's like Excel, except it's better in almost every way, I think. Uh, it's more of like a, a database um, thing. And I, I don't even really know how to describe it very well, except that uh, essentially we, we had these, every shot had its own entry. And then we could have like an unlimited number of fields, just like you'd have an unlimited number of, of uh, columns in Excel or something. But they were 
they were often feeding into each other. And so there'd be like certain things where we would, we would tag a shots, like anything that needed roto got the roto tag, anything that needed tracking got the tracking tag. Um, we could assign them to different artists by just having a field that has the artist's name. And then everyone would have access to this entire thing. And that was, that was a, a unique thing, but it was really helpful because we could have all these different shots and you could look at all the shots and see every, every aspect of them that we were tracking, but we could also assign the shots. And then you could have a specific view with an air table where you could just look at only your shots. Or if you had, uh, if you, and if we need to reassign something and just be quick, like change the name, all of a sudden it pops over to someone else's list. Anything where we're like, we have revisions on all of these things. We can just like get a view and see only the shots that we have revisions on and group things. So it was, it was very organized, but it was also very open and accessible. And so we could, we could create a system where everyone could look at everything if they want to, or we could get it very granular to, granular to only the things that you're responsible for. Um, but it also made it really easy to communicate with each other on something. Like we could just, we were using Slack to, to communicate throughout the day. Um, we'd have like Zoom meetings in the morning and just talk over the shots, share new things, ask questions, problem solve together. Um, and then we would just be communicating in Slack and there'd be times when someone would have a problem with the shot and be like, Hey, I'm having a problem with this. Uh, can you just, you want to just like take it and like work on it. And because we were all working in after effects and we all knew what, like what tools everyone was using, we were very, we were very cognizant of making sure we all, we were always, we all had access to the same plugins. We were using a very limited palette in terms of, uh, the, the plugins that we're using and, and any third-party stuff. Uh, but also all the projects were organized in the exact same way. So Ashish and I developed um, a, a project template for every single project and every shot folder. So you could, you could open up one shot folder and you would know exactly where everything was. Um, and the same with the projects where it's like every project was the same. Every project had all the same settings. It had all, already been prepped. So when, when an artist would receive a project, it had already been prepped by Ashish. I had opened it up. I had taken a look and made sure because Ashish didn't know After Effects uh, really before this. And so I just taught him how to do like the basic stuff. And then every now and then uh, we'd get something and it would be have like 20 retimed keyframes for the footage. And I was like, well, let me go ahead and like fix this or like make sure that this is looking good. And then like bake out the retimed play so that the artist doesn't have to worry about messing with any retiming because retiming gets a little bit messy in After Effects. So, uh, so I've, I've done one project with Airtable and I, I think the views on it are good. Like you can view yeah. it from different points of view, but what do you get out of a um, hardcore VFX app uh, for project management? And especially with something like Nuke is that you tend to link the Nuke script itself inside mm -hmm. the scheduling program, right? So like the kind of that data moves and stuff with it. You don't do that in this case, and you don't do it with After Effects like that. Yeah. Did, you, did you have any of that kind of issue about like, you know, because you're basically managing two separate things then, right? You're managing right. kind of an asset thing and a scheduling thing. Yeah. Well, I think the we we had set up a process and a system where people would like the artists would be responsible for updating their shots in Airtable as well. But if that didn't happen, I was always there to make sure that. Anytime a new render came out, like I'd check it, I'd update it. But also we weren't really updating it as frequently with things like what version are we on? Because Ashish had the latest version. He had he knew what the latest version was. We had any notes that were relevant, but a lot of the time it was uh we just had very specific 
and detailed naming conventions for everything so that it was really easy to keep track of stuff. It, was, it, wasn't it was very final, final, final one, final. Two. Oh, no, 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 no. It was only like none of that stuff. It was always just like, it was just straight up version number and the highest version was always the correct one. So even if we had an issue where we just wanted to keep it as simple as possible and I, that was a big part of the process because it was so different and we were all separate, we needed to make sure that it was very simple as well and there were certain things that we tried that really didn't work very well or we just abandoned them because it's like this is there's too much room for error with this stuff because you needed uh, that universality uh and consistency what were the plugins that you guys liked in after effects that you were using uh ethan why don't you take this one because you've you love what we use yes I, I have <laughs> Uh, some secret sauce and I'll call them you know my trade secrets that actually allowed us to do some very special resolution independent things that Matt had talked about but um maybe I'll just be a little more open share as much that. as you like it's only between uh, you and I sure <laughs> um but um Boris effects and sapphire and continuum wound up having a, a wonderful toolkit that did everything from uh, again, in, in keeping resolution independence, allowing us to imbue footage with qualities of lens um, so that we might degrain and regrain a shot to match, you know, take a low res shot and bring it up to 4K and then make sure that it has the same chromatic aberration of a, a specific lens that's being, you know, used in a scene. Um, uh, I almost felt like I was throwing that word around ad nauseum. Uh, throughout the course of the film, uh, because it proved to be uh, a very important tool to allow us to um, make everything match. Um, but surprisingly, beyond um, uh, what I'll call technical tools, plugins to really help with the, the polish and finish of an image, there were not a lot of plugins that generated style. There were not plugins that created Oh, you know, um, trying to think of things like, um, oh my goodness, what's the um, video copilot plugin that's popular that traces objects? Is it? Um, I will pause uh, on. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure. Saber is what I was oh, thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So Saber is, for example, a plugin that provides a visual component of design. You would like glowing outlines um, on your text, and you'd like them to trace. You could have a plugin that would provide a look. Um, we actually internally generated and built from scratch many of the stylized components ourselves. So there wasn't an off-the-shelf toolkit. Um, for example, um, when it came to all the motion graphics to sort of uh, present Evelyn's Alphaverse software with the multiverse maps and whatnot, uh, rather than look for a toolkit to add, you know, VHS static or um, glow or something like that. Um, I, I'm one of the few people of my generation who started an optical compositing on an optical printer and intranegative and um, went back and said, oh, well, you know, this is how I would build it on an Oxberry. I would use a codolith and transparencies and I would use these different onboard filtration and I can digitally emulate that and I can get this backlit animation look. Uh, and imbue the animation with, let's say, a patina that looks like an LCD screen or something similar, and just manually build it out. And then we would wind up with the project file that we could drag and drop animation in and have the stylized look. So, um, 
you know, I, I would love to be able to plug certain companies. I mean, we did we did use um, uh, again Boris Effects and Red Giant for some uh, of the the um, light and lens qualities, um, but um, it was it was grassroots and DIY in order to find the style of certain things. Yeah, that's fascinating. I uh, I did do my first film with uh, opticals, and uh, so, but not at the level that you're at. But I've got to say, like, yes, those backlit graphics, uh, even in early TV shows like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, were remarkable uh, back then, and still look Gorgeous. remarkable today. Yeah. yeah no. If if I could talk a moment about art direction and the Ghostbusters comment, you know, part of what made those movies look the way they did is because everything is in front of a lens is made of light, is reflecting light. And when you start to build things out in CG, um, you don't have the built-in physics of what light on your art actually would do if it existed in front of a camera. You have to manually think about, you know, the proper and correct light effects should you want it to match photography. So you can't just, you know, do a collage and everything falls into place the way you could dress a set, light it, and everything falls into place. So part of what, what I had been focusing on was the familiarity of how Larkin had lit everything and to make sure that whatever effects, whatever elements we had brought in felt as though they were properly lit in highlight and shadow and drop shadow um, to be compliant with how Larkin Seipel would light it. So um, as much as, you know, there, there was a, an art direction and style component. Um, there was a, I'll call it like a, a DPQC component in order to just be mindful of how to make everything match. Again, not the worst shot, not the best shot, not the hardest shot, but what shot went to a lot of revisions and why? You know, we had, um, there are two that come to mind, but the one that's, that I'll, I'll bring up right now was a very straightforward need a matte painting for the film. Um, the IRS building obviously did not exist. Um, and we faced designing this building very early in the process. Lockdown had just occurred. It was basically me and Zach, possibly Ben at that point. Um, and we needed to go through you know, the design process of what this building should look like and how it should be executed. Um, bypassing the talk on the design, um, because I'm not the 3D artist on this job and because my skills are more uh, in the 2D world um, and because we had, I'll say, you know, uh, we went dark for a little while um, while A24 was looking at the future of the film in a world shut down. Um, we spoke about the possibility of approaching this as a traditional sort of, well, semi-traditional 2D matte painting done in photo collage and digital paint in a, in a world where you might just make a building in 3D quite simply. Um, so they agreed to keeping me on for three days to see if I could prove in 2D that we could do this building just by hand, by eye, um, with drawn out sight lines and one point perspective. Um, uh, and build out what would be a successful um, matte painting. And um, somehow, even though you know we arrived at the correct design, and even though we built it out, I just remember um, the trepidation of the Daniels wondering if this matte painting looked realistic enough. 
um, made made in a very handmade fashion. Um, eventually, you know, we did work out all of their notes, and um, I think you know, even if it's a probably something I'd never request to do or find efficient to do again, uh, wound up with a great establishing shot in the film. Um, at least to the point where when it was delivered uh, to color, you know, colorist thought there might've been a mistake because he received an effect shot and didn't know, didn't see the effect in it and thought oh, it might've nice. been late. Um, that was a very hard one um, to, to just pull off um, and make it, make people believe that it would be okay. Jeff, can I switch to you? Is there a particular shot we can point to that went to a lot of revisions? Yeah, there were a lot. I, I was, I had a lot of the shots around the, the, the showdown with the bagel on my plate. And um, especially a lot of those where, where it, it uh, that involved coming up with, a, you know, what it would look like the closer they got to the bagel and what those distortions would look like. And then what, what the, you know, eventually going into the bagel uh, would look like. And um, I remember this one shot in particular that ended up having, I think something like 30, 35, 40 revisions, um, 30, you know, it's like, I've got um, the whole <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was one of the shots where, uh, and, and it happened right at a, a before like the, the, it was an emotional pivot point of the movie and uh, when uh, just about when um, joy steps backwards into the bagel and she disappears into it and um, it really was um, I, I I worked with Dan uh, on that one in particular to really like to to figure out what it was going to look like from like the moment when when the the bagel's vortex starts gnawing on the on the skin and like tearing it ever so slightly to the point where she gets completely enveloped by this by this darkness and this this black vortex and how it interacts with uh with her because she was really the only the only thing that was shot was uh was was uh uh stephanie against a uh the actress against a a blue screen and so it was, Jeff, a, was it was it the problem in finding the right visual solution or was it you knew what it wanted to look like and it was a technical problem to find the right technical yeah. solution to pull it off we didn't know what it would look like we right. we really had like we um i think we we had like uh zach and ben early on had like set up a look for like what it's kind of what the bagel would look like in like sort of semi or in a wide shot or like a, a medium close up. And um, like here it meant figuring out like what the interaction would actually look like of like a physical skin and like, uh, you know, person getting, you know. So it was like what the, it was solving visual detail. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like um, because um, we didn't know how to create what the bagel, uh, the biggest material was and how right. it would, because I, I, a time also was very acting very differently near the bagel. Like they, Dan knew that it, it, it wasn't behaving like at the same speed as everything around it. So things would slow down and we would see particles in the air that weren't there uh uh, that you would normally see in any of the other shots, so it was, and, and they came up. We came up with this weird step uh, uh, steppiness that that uh, uh, borrows sort of from the Wonka Wai uh, right. uh, 
Section I've got to say, this sounds to me like yeah. one of those occasions of we need something we've never seen before. And the trouble with that is there are like so many requests like that in the history of film that it's very hard to find something <laughs> somebody hasn't seen before. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, you pulled it off. So that's great. So like, Matt, can I Thank swing you. to you? Sure. Um, well, first of all, just uh, very quickly with respect to software, I wanted to plug Mocha Pro. Um, oh, because yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I was using Mocha almost as much as After Effects sometimes. And the lens distortion feature for anamorphic was crucial to some paint out and the um, new kind of warp feature where it tracks something kind of on a warping grid rather than exclusively a planar grid was really helpful when we were doing uh, paint outs on people's faces, for instance. So um, plug Mocha Pro. And I also know that um, I think Jeff was using Cinema 4D and Ben was using Blender, Blender for the yeah. limited amount of 3D. So, um, but yeah. Um, Mocha is remarkable and, and the trouble is some of those tools are so remarkable, but we don't give them enough credit because we kind of just, they're there, right? They have been for like- Yeah, I mean, Mocha's days. built into After Effects, so that's why I forgot about yeah. it because yeah. I like, I just launched Mocha. But yeah, we use Mocha a ton. So go on, Matt. What about uh, a hard, oh, not a hard shot, as I say, a shot that just went to a lot of revisions and why? Um, for sure, it was the, the first shot, the mirror shot for me. Um, and that went to over 30 revisions. And I think part of it was because there were so many different plates that were involved with it in each plate was its own VFX shot in a way. The uh, push-in, there was a dolly paint out um, for, the, uh, for, the, for the, the, the shot that it ends with, where it's pushing in during the day uh, toward Evelyn sitting in a table. There was a dolly track paint out, for instance, um, for the night shot where they're singing. Um, there was, uh, we were retimed, I think. I think that shot was shot in slow motion, but the speakers had to be in uh, regular motion, I think. Um, so I ended up having to stabilize those and then kind of reproject them again. So I tracked them as a corner pin in Mocha, unstretched them, uh, retimed them, restretched them. Um, and, uh, then there was, uh, the nighttime ceiling matching the daytime ceiling. And those two plates I think were shot at separate times. So the perspective didn't really match. It was a similar composition, but the perspective wasn't quite the same. So again, I found myself kind of creating a Photoshop plate, um, out of, uh, the um, uh, ceiling that you see in the daytime in uh, the, the first shot of the movie where it pushes in and then you see the ceiling um, to match the perspective of the ceiling at the nighttime. And um, there was just uh, so much like that, that uh, over time, um, the compositions, there were so many layers of pre-comps and over time it became really unwieldy and uh, you know, you could pre-render stuff, but then if you pre-render stuff, you lose the flexibility of uh so it just um it just became this massive uh, massive project and uh you know it had to be pretty clean too because it was the first shot in the movie so we were on to so the render times on that were rough and just like the the complexity of it was uh starting to get overwhelming i don't know if you guys find this and matt i apologize if i'm but i remember being in deep in comp shots like that where it was like really you're holding it in your head and it was almost like i wanted no one to walk into the room and talk to me because I had to have it in kind of bits to make it work, but holding that in my head, I could do it. But if I like had to get up and go do something like even go get um, something from the shops, I'd it'd just dump out of my brain and it'd take me like forever to get it kind of back oh, into the. For sure. It was a, it was a longer period for me because uh, I was stuck on it for so long. But then when I had to return to it later, I was looking through it and I was like, how did I, how is this put together? I don't even remember. So um, yeah, for sure. I can relate to that. Okay, so that gets us back to you, Zach. So what about for you? Uh, so before I get into that, I, I've been wanting to share this thing. I, I put together a, uh, a, 
a big celebratory message to everyone on the team after we finished it, where I just ran some numbers. Uh, and I'll just I'll just go through this because it's quick. Uh, and this will this also speaks to your your question. Um, but I wrote together as a VFX department, we worked to combine 602 days of post-production starting in April of 2020. Um, 481 shots were included in Airtable across 450 shot folders, but given that there were multiple sequence and mul with multiple associated shots, it was well over 500. Um, thanks to one of our little naming conventions where we just put the same prefix before every output, I can tell you that we had 1,994 renders that were uploaded to our sync drives. Uh, and da -da -da -da, summing up all the final version numbers of approved shots, Set, sent to the grid gets us 2,819 versions, uh, and that's 4.8 versions per day, and that yeah. doesn't count any of our R&D from the early days of the film. Uh, 91 shots had more than 10 versions, and the highest version of any shot goes to uh, Jeff and Ethan, who tied with 39 version 39 for two particular shots, and one of them was the shot that Jeff was talking about, so... <laughs> Um, and the other one was the first time we reveal the bagel. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was our, our process. But for, for me personally, the, uh, it w it had to have been the first time the bagel enters the IRS building, which is like this huge moment. Cause it's, it's a similar thing to what Matt was saying, where it was like, it was a ton of different visual effects shots combined into one. It was like, you know, there was a there's a moment where we're seeing another character through like her hands as she's going up, and then the bagel appears, and then it like explodes into the iris building, and people get sucked into it. And it was just it was so much stuff in that project that it was like I I couldn't have handed it off to another person at that point if I wanted to, because it was like you're talking about Mike, where it's just like I'm holding this in my head, like I know what's in here. And if and it was so deep, it just got like, and I'm someone who really tries to keep things really clean, but even that one, I couldn't, I couldn't, it just, there were too many things going on with it. That was my mother's favorite shot, Zach. She loved it. Oh, really? That's great. <laughs> In the theater, she went, oh my God, that's incredible. So I want to finish up. There are just two points that I would be remiss if I didn't check with you. The first one is, uh, were there any special considerations for sound? Because sound is so important and often VFX is sort of done mute, but considerations here because of the nature of that fast cutting and stuff. I was just wondering, was there like, how did audio fit into that discussion or did it not fit into your discussion? Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. We, we would always receive references with the, with the temp audio that they'd put together. So if there was something that needed to, where we knew that a sound was coming in, we could use that as needed. But a lot of times it was the reverse where sound design would like, they would look at some of our stuff and they'd be like, all right, we've got a lot to work with here. We're going to kind of design this to the, to the effect. So it was, it was a bit of both, but it wasn't a, I don't recall having a lot of conversations about the sound of something when we were developing the visual. Or work. leaving the, the timing for sound to leaving space for the sound or the way that that would uh, work because that's one of the things I was just like it, it helps us orientate ourselves the sound yeah no there were I mean I think that we're all used to you know watching it with the sound and seeing like and, and just kind of intuitively being like oh yeah this thing happens like yeah, yeah but, but yeah I don't know if that's, that's not so, so the last thing I wanted to finish up on it, and it sounds a bit trite but it's I think it's really uh, important so if you were to go back to yourselves at the beginning of the project 
like what piece of advice would you give yourself or what would you have liked to have known? Because I think one of the things that you just can't beat is you guys have done this and have the experience of doing this. Uh-huh. And so not, not like what was wrong, but just like, uh, was there anything that you would do differently knowing now what you, you know about the whole project? Every project's different. So I'm just asking on this one. Yeah. I'll let y'all think, but I, I know for, for myself, I'd, I'd chill out a little bit. Uh, I think that I was a little, uh, Jeff didn't get to experience this and Jeff's, Jeff's entry into the, uh, or, or Matt really, but, um, Ethan and Ben would be the first to tell you that I was like, I kind of had an iron grasp on like, on like how much time we were spending on stuff. Because the other thing that I wish I would have known is what our actual budget was, because that would have been nice because then I, but I think that was a strategic thing too. Like they were like, you have this much money. I'm like, this is impossible. How are we going to do this? And then every time I was like, we're going to go over budget. They're like, okay. And then eventually you know, we just we basically hit the budget that we actually had. Um, so it was, I, I wasn't, I, I don't know that that was, that's a whole thing, but it was, you know, it worked out in the end, but I, I, so I wish I would have been a little, I would have chilled out a little bit. Uh, and it's not that I was a, a tyrant, but I was definitely like, how long are you spending on this? When really it was, you know. Just to clarify that, like I know of films that have had so much budget and it's changed during the end stage of the film, not because mm. no one was cheating anyone or tricking anyone, but because as the studio and as the executives and as the creative team so coming together, they're like, yeah, this is working. We, we're going right. to bother giving it more money versus this thing is like really not coming together and not not your film but this thing isn't coming together and it's like you know like a hell show on wheels and we're just going to cut our losses and try and just finish it and get it out the door Mm. were were you did you did you have because of the break with COVID and everything uh like for example for people that don't know like there are shots in like there's a shot in the car where Michelle I think was shot completely separate um And then outside the window, I think it's one of the director's hands that comes up to the window. And like, that's a whole, like none of that would have been able, because it's shot and she was in France, wasn't she? And it was like the directors were doing stuff. Yeah. So that's an unforeseen visual effect that could have had funds released to it because, okay, we've got a whole different ball game now. So, so did you have that? Did you have funds changing because of the, that in post or was it? It's really hard to know. I I mean, think money was was shifting around a lot because like they weren't anticipating having to do remote reshoots, and yeah. you know there was a lot of that stuff that was that was happening behind the scenes that I wasn't terribly privy to. Um, but I do know that you know there were there would be times I think where what was originally allotted to us, like there was I know that there was like half of the visual effects, but it originally was was set aside just in case our little experiment failed uh, to go to like a larger company to handle all the bagel stuff. But we proved pretty early on. It's like, no, nah, we got this handled. Like we can, we can do this. Um, Cause I, got, and I think you got the bagel. I, yeah, we got the bagel. Um, so that, and I know that like some money got taken away from our department at some point because like they need to like bounce and things, but then it came back. I, I don't really know. All I know is that we ultimately like went a little bit over what I think was originally allocated, but I don't know where, like how it changed in between. Yeah, when so. when a film successful, no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about the other guys? Getting back to my original question, like uh, advice, if you could go back. Ooh, you know, I'm thinking about it and having a little trouble coming up with one answer, you know, ancillary to what Zach had said. Um, 
you know, uh, at the beginning of the film, there was perhaps a notion that there was a right way to do everything. Um, and the ideology of this film, and in fact, the arc of Evelyn through the film, she starts off, you know, a little bit blind to her focus and or lack of focus and kind of opens up and finds her third eye. Um, had there been the opportunity to get everybody together, had we all come on, on at the same time, um, I think we might have been able to uh, very quickly realize that we can relax a little bit and that we can uh, try different things than what you might uh, think is the only right answer. And, and just to, to close this up, you know, the one thing we learned at the end was um, the Daniels were important to talk to. Um, and perhaps it wasn't until the end of the film that we were realizing that in order to really have this movie uh, look and feel the way that they would like, that we really needed to open up conversation. And obviously that came from the need to get the film done. Uh, and to really speed things along. But um, I would have loved a version where we could have all more comfortably spoken, you know, directly um, and um, openly uh, from the get-go. Jeff? Yeah, similar to Ethan, I I would also tell myself that if I if I were to go back, I, I you know, like it was overwhelming at first being, you know, just being presented with, what with what the task at hand was going to be because that's what i was um, expecting you guys to yeah. say when i started this interview right? <laughs> so i'm glad somebody got there oh yeah no, it was insane like uh, the reason i needed to chill out is because uh, i was looking at something that seemed like it was like oh my god like what <laughs> uh, i'm happy yeah i can't imagine what that was like so you know and still from my perspective i was I was only like given a small chunk, you know, and I was giving it one chunk at a time. I can only imagine what it would have been like to to be Zach uh, and and just having this mountain of work that needs to be done and to be, but like I would tell myself, you know, it's going to be fine, and you know, it's it's like sometimes you just don't know what you can do until you you do it, you know, and and a lot of this, uh, you know, because a lot of these shots we do them from, you know. Let we do the um, one artist does everything from layout all the way to final compositing and rendering it out. And um, yeah, you, you sometimes surprise yourself uh, what 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 you can do with you, you know, if you research everything, uh, even the things you don't know how you're gonna do them. Um, and yeah, I would just tell myself that and and get a better computer because I did everything from a from a MacBook Pro and it's from what? like 2017. <laughs> It's such an old machine. Like, I mean, it's it's it was steaming by the end of it. <laughs> oh, my oh my god, Matt. Yeah, I want to just echo the Jeff's last comment about um, MacBook Pros. I'm on his I think 2019 MacBook Pro, and it's it's pretty <laughs> old. It's not it's not good enough. And um, like I, I discovered in real time I'm doing, during this process, I'm doing this interview on a more powerful machine uh, than that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it's it's good for working remotely because I can just travel travel around and work. But um, the um, there were times where like my computer started overheating so badly that I was ordering like weird mats on Amazon with fans below them <laughs> to try to like because I noticed my render times were changing and I think they were changing not based so much on the shot sometimes but based on how much the computer was overheating and throttling. And I figured out like that if you use the dual screen. If you use two screens at once, it uh, slows it down. And so I was trying to use just one. I was trying to use my at times I just use my laptop screen, but then I would go to my, I don't know, 
I wish it, yeah, fast computer would be nice. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think I wish I'd experimented a little bit more because most of the shots that I was doing were more straightforward. They were more paint out and uh, screen composites. And like, luckily that's a um, straightforward process. So I could, you know, listen to music and work on it. But um, there were, I think, opportunities to, uh, you know, experiment more. And uh, I, uh, I just at the last few days, I started throwing a few more things in there. But with given the schedule, there wasn't, you know, it was it was pretty much just trying to keep up. But um, I would have liked to try to experiment with a couple, you know, more effects, a couple more looks. But um, Man, know, I'm, um, I'm so inspired yeah. by that because like the number of people that say, you know, if I really want to do this right, I have to get just the right computer and I, I can't do it because I don't have this right thing, you know, and like there's this thing about writers, you know, like people that aren't very good writers say, oh, I don't have exactly the right paper and exactly the right pen. And if only I had that. And then somebody points out that the Gettysburg Address was written on the back of a, uh, a lunch wrapper, right? And like a good artist doesn't get defined by their tools. So the fact that you were doing that, I, I it's completely a validation that oh, it's your thank you. Your skill, not your uh, tools that make your work good. That um, if anything, that's my character arc. Cause I started out <laughs> 10, 10 years back, like looking for a monitor. And I was like, you know, on a colorist forum. And I was like, is this one calibrated? And then it's like, um, well, you know, we're working on log footage that only has to match relative to other log footage. So if the screen isn't perfect, I mean, it has to be good, but like good enough. But like, if it's not perfectly calibrated, it really is more a matter of, you know, just once you're stably calibrated, right? Like yeah. But, fluctuating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like, even broadly, um, I thought I talked with uh, everyone else. I assumed that they learned VFX in school because my, my school didn't have a technical film program, but it turns out they all learned on video copilot the same as I did. And, um, you know, like I was really impressed with the, uh, this is not VFX, but I was really impressed with some of Dan and Daniel's blocking, how they, um, you know, covered certain scenes with uh, characters crossing and then they were able to coordinate camera movement. And, uh, you know, I think that was more a matter of their uh, collaboration with uh, their cinematographer, uh, Ethan mentioned. And on top of that, you know, watching, uh, what was it, uh, the, just those YouTube videos uh, about every, every frame of painting or whatever. And, um, you know, I think that there's an enthusiasm to people who are uh, self-taught, but I also think that, um, it's a different world. Cause like I was thinking back to Spielberg making Amblin and like back then you couldn't put a short film together without a crew. And I think to like, uh, you know, in the nineties when digital video became big, you got, um, a lot of adult swim stuff, uh, you know, channel one one Tim and Eric coming out of, you know, a very different approach to video, just making something with one or two friends. And to me, this, uh, felt an extent, um, like a merging of those worlds. It's like a, a grow or a growth out of the, uh, kind of DIY approach, but you know, uh, more mature growth than you might get at a, on an adult swim show or something where there are even fewer resources. Yeah. Stu Mashowitz, uh, you know, who uh, was really a pioneer of that rebel uh, indie kind of thing, just that whole idea that you need to be steeped in cinematic language much more than like a uh, sort of technical kit. Um, and so get a, get a camera and make something and you can do that with a digital camera. So, uh, so Zach, congratulations on uh, pulling all this together. Though, seriously, dude, you've got to get these guys some better computers on the next one. I mean, I got, I got Ethan and Ben. Like, we, we got them computers to, to work on. I didn't know that Jeff and <laughs> I, I had no idea. I was just like seeing what they sent back, and I was like, this is great. But honestly, that's a, that's a, it's a metaphor for, for this process. Like, I, I feel like such a scrub. Like, just with how you know, like. Like the the bigger companies, like they're they're doing all that stuff, but we're we're doing something different. We're doing something unique, and I I think there was a large degree of just the the naivete of of the whole thing. And that's I mean, 
sometimes you can make the best stuff if you don't know like how crazy you're being or with, with something. And you can just be like, all right, well, yeah, I'll say yes to this thing. And, and in hindsight, if I could go back and, and, and I don't know if I would have said yes, if I knew now what I know then, but yeah, I, it, but I it's did. a cliche, but necessity yeah. is the mother of invention, right? Like you just, yeah, kinda... so we just, I mean, but that's, that's always been how we've all always done it. We've just figured it out and we've made it as good as we can because, and I, I don't know if we would, if we weren't already friends and we didn't know each other, I don't know how like we would have come out of this. I think that that, as hard as that can be sometimes, I think it also strengthened our relationships because like, even when I was just, you know, like so overwhelmed and being like, I'm doing three jobs. You need to spend less time on this shot. We don't have any money. Like at the end of the day, it's like, we're all friends and they know that I'm only acting a certain way because, you know, like I want this to be as good as it can be. And and we all do. So, um, so, but, so yeah. let me just finish by congratulating you guys on the film. And on behalf of the film community, we hope you don't get any more money. You don't get any more computers. You don't get any more no. time. <laughs> no. you're, you're forced to make more brilliant films. Uh, under construction. We're afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much Yo. for being with us, guys. Thank, yeah, you. Thanks, thank, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank the guys so much for that uh, opportunity to go through in such depth with their work. But I've got to say, like, it was just so much, uh, you can probably tell it was so much joy talking to the guys and uh, I really admire the work that they've done. So it was great to have them on the show. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, John and I'll be back uh, soon with the next episode of the VFX podcast. But until then, please check out the stuff that we've posted on FX Guide and, of course, the extra clips that I mentioned earlier uh, that we've included, the making ofs that, uh, that Zach and the team uh, provided for us on the website. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.